who better to weigh in on the challenges of a life at home than billionaire venture capitalist Reid Hoffman. An original member of the tech industry's PayPal mafia, Hoffman was an early believer in social media, creating one of the internet's first social networks before launching the business-focused site LinkedIn. Over the years, he's made big bets on companies like Facebook and Airbnb, and now sits on the board of some of the fastest growing startups in Silicon Valley. In this episode of Influencers, I'm joined by Reid Hoffman as we discuss the future of the tech sector, the outcome of the 2020 election, and where he's putting his money to work as we look toward the new year. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guest, Reid Hoffman, entrepreneur, investor, venture capitalist, partner at VC firm Greylock and co-founder of LinkedIn. Reid, great to see you. Uh, great to see you as well, even in these modern pandemic times as we do this over Skype. Yeah, exactly. And so much to talk about pandemic and the election. Let's start with the election, Reid, and you have supported um, the Democrats and, and Joe Biden um, invested resources into ousting President Trump. What's the most important reason why Joe Biden won? I think the most important reason is actually, in fact, a need to return to stability, to unity rather than division, right? And then to apply expertise to questions like the pandemic. Because even though there might be some politicization about like, look, how bad is the pandemic and how much are shutdowns necessary, we should apply public health knowledge. We should apply you know, uh, scientific knowledge. We should apply economic knowledge in order to actually do good governance on it. And I think it's very much a referendum on, no, no, it's not a reality television show. Good governance matters. And I think that's one of the things where Biden, who's a, who's a lifelong centrist, uh, it was part of the reason why his, his inaugural message was, I, I am here to govern for the entire country for everyone's well-being, not just the people who voted for me, you know, in stark contrast, obviously, to President Trump. You know, Reid, it's refreshing to hear you speaking out whether or not, you know, I even happen to agree with you politically, because there are a lot of people who won't, business people who won't speak out. Um, and again, either side of the aisle. How hard is it for you to do that? Because obviously you're alienating some people. Well, I definitely get grief. Um, I get grief, you know, whether it's in the LinkedIn context or generally. And, you know, that's, that's frustrating because most of the places where I try to speak out on this, I'm speaking out on a basis of rule of law, anti-corruption. It's one of the reasons why I actually uh, posted on LinkedIn recently, you know, kind of like what is the, and on Greylock, you know, kind of like why CEOs should speak up in politics and sometimes, because it isn't that speaking up on politics is necessarily being partisan. If you're kind of like, look, what we want is we want stability. We want actually an ability to, to kind of work together. Those kinds of things, that claim, if it is partisan, then it's partisan only on the side of goodness. Now, there are other times where I will also make some claims because I, you know, there's a particular value that I that I like and most many of those values on the Democratic side. But obviously, I'm very pro-business, I'm very pro-entrepreneurship, I'm very pro-technology. Right? So, so the, there's a stack of things where I will articulate those. But as business people, we, if we want a centrist country, we want to not be run by the extremes of either the left or the right, you do need to speak up 
with the things that are the baseline centrism, rule of law, count every vote, peaceful transition of power. These things matter for the health of our country and for the health of business. Well, let's talk about that a little bit more then. I mean, President Trump has said, I didn't lose the election and is challenging and contesting the results in specific states that he's lost by even in excess of 100,000 votes. He's lost the popular vote by close to 5 million. How do you think this is going to play out? Well, I think, I, I think ultimately we will see a transition of power. I think we will see sabotage uh, from Trump and his administration on that transition. I think that sabotage is essentially anti-American. It's anti, not just rule of law and process, but in good governance for, for, for all of us as American citizens who, who live here. And that's, I think, because you know, President Trump has fundamentally more approached governance as a reality television show, you know, including the COVID stuff. Like, I have a good feeling it's going to go away. You know, hey, maybe you can, you can inject bleach, right? Because, of course, you're not talking to, 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 to actually medical experts and doctors on this. And I think that's going to be a real problem. And I think it's going to have lasting impact on the divisions in the country because um, we're, as actually, in fact, we should be saying, hey, we should be coming together. We should be building our way out of the pandemic. Like that should be like you could just imagine, you know, the, like the superstars from the Republican side, you know, uh, you know, George W. Bush and other folks kind of going, OK, like this is actually, in fact, we should we should be coming together as a country. This is the this is essentially what we should be doing. And I think this is I think this this refusal to admit it to treating it like it's a reality television star of like, you know, Donald Trump is on The Apprentice and refuses to be fired, you know, is it is simply a, a one more dismissive of the health of American society. Does this hurt the economy, Reed, and maybe in particular Silicon Valley? And what's the conversation there like? Well, I think it definitely hurts the economy because, you know, people frequently associate business only with like free flowing capital, lower taxes and uh, lower regulation. And there's lots of things that help. Uh, actually, in fact, business, like, for example, a stable society that's predictable, an environment that you can invest in, uh, an, a, an accessible use of talent, a healthy and thriving middle class that can buy goods and services. And so actually, in fact, there's a lot of different uh, approaches that are being pro-business. And this kind of chaos is anti-business because now relative to Silicon Valley, which obviously, you know, we're fortunate that technology is what's driving um, a lot of the changes in industry and the in the future. So a lot of you know Silicon Valley investors and businesses are all benefiting from this. You know, even in COVID, where we see like you know Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, said it very well in the first two months of the pandemic. Said in two months we've seen two years of digital transformation, where people are using the technologies and adopting them more quick, uh, quickly and more thoroughly because they need to in order to keep business running. So it, it's been you know, good for all that, but instability is bad for all business, including technology. You mentioned uh, the social media platforms of which you are so familiar. How do you think they performed and what's your assessment of, of what happened during this election uh, cycle? So I think we're on a learning curve and it kind of is unfortunate that, you know, we get to experience the learning curve versus get a plea planet and release it at scale. Um, because I think a lot of what, what has happened, uh, with, which both Facebook and Twitter did in the last month, is stuff you wish they'd been doing for you know five plus years. Of hey, this is uh, this is actually counter you know counter the experts, counter facts, 
uh, this is dangerous. This is an incitement to violence, you know, and, and saying, look, we're going to we're going to frame that and we're going to make sure that people are aware of that. And I think those are the beginnings of the steps in the right direction for what should actually, in fact, be persistent. Like, for example, you've seen some of it even drop off now because they said, oh, the elections over, it's been called to so release that. And you're like, well, actually, in fact, people calling for, you know, uh, election theft, which is, by the way, all the experts, including all the Republican experts, look at this and say, look, you can challenge, you know, in some narrow states and recount the ballot, but it's not going to make a difference because, like, at these numbers and at the safety of our voting systems, including the vote by mail, um, you know, those are all, those have all called it. And actually, there's one particular piece I just, you know, I feel like I'm compelled to say, which is there was this kind of constant Republican line of you're adding in points after the game is called. And you're like, okay, we want to use a metaphor. It's like you scored a leading touchdown in the third quarter, the third, you know, the, 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 the third um, uh, quarter of the game, and you want to call the game then versus waiting for the fourth quarter, right? Like it is actually, in fact, every state has the law to set its vote by mail and doing vote by mail. That's not calling the game early. That's, that's calling the game on time. And, it, and, and promoting that is destructive to our democracy. People should understand that actually every vote does count. And it's really important that as a democracy, like I treasure, um, you know, people who I disagree with, their ability to vote. It's super important that we are in this together. And that's the legitimacy of the election results. Um, we've talking mostly here about Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. But what about LinkedIn, Reed? Is LinkedIn immune from misinformation? Uh, well, no social media platform is completely immune um, because part of what you enable is you enable everyone to have a voice and to put something on. And, you know, one of the things that's a little unfortunate about the modern media ecosystem, which includes social media, is it reminds me of a Winston Churchill quote, which is, you know, the, a lie travels around the world three times before the truth has a chance to put its boots on. And, you know, truth is slow uh, in the way that it kind of works. And that's one of the things I think we need to kind of figure out as we as we benefit from increasing speed and communication and so forth. And so I think, you know, even LinkedIn has challenges with it where it's easier for us because people tie the professional reputation, the, the, the theming is things about business. And so you don't tend to get, you know, like we had a little bit of QAnon stuff because people would put on, you don't tend to get as much of the wacky QAnon stuff, but we also had to kind of go, okay, you know, this is not according to uh, LinkedIn terms of service, this, so we're, we're pulling this off. Uh, and so, you know, so it, it has a little, but not not as much as um, not as much as the other platforms have to contend with. So as we go into the Biden era, uh, I'm curious as to what you think the direction and tenor of Washington, D.C.'s um, desire to perhaps rein in or regulate the big tech platforms, what path that's going to take? Because it's it's not at all clear cut. You've got Ted Cruz, David Cicilline, now Joe Biden, uh, Senator Warner, people with very different political perspectives who seem to share uh, distrust and anxiety about the platforms. But that's where the, the common ground ends, right? Yeah. So, so roughly speaking, I'm a, um, I, I, this is not a no regulation point of view, but I am a very strong believer that we've now moved to a multipolar world. Uh, China will be building more and more of the technology platforms that matter in the coming years. Um, and 
and actually to some degree, I hope that there's other places like I, you know, um, you know, one of the Greylock investments we have is this, this incubator called Entrepreneur First, which is building tech communities in Europe and in Singapore. So, you know, like I hope for, for more of this. But what that means is you don't disable your own player, right? You don't go, hey, let's try to do that. What you want to do is you want to shape them. You want to say, look, these outcomes, misinformation, here is our social mandate for how do we change that so we have more truth in the media ecosystem. You know, those kinds of things are important. But like the, the, the classic notion of an antitrust or breakup, I think those are generally speaking going to be actually, in fact, a counter American health and prosperity. And by the way, I say that as my primary thing as an investor, as, as new startups, as, com as, as competing with these large tech companies. So this is not like a, an embodied interest. But actually, in fact, I think where we have maybe five tech giants today, I think you know five years from now, we're gonna have tech, 10 tech giants. And those competition between those tech giants is what creates lots of space for startups to either you know uh, get their initial base or to grow into being the 11th or to be bought by one of them. And so that's part of the reason why I think actually, in fact, um, the, the antitrust isn't the right thing, but figuring out how to contribute the right way to the health of, of our society and global society is the right thing. But two questions here. So first of all, when you're talking about going from five to 10, are you talking about the other five being in China? And then also what specifically though, short of antitrust and breaking things up would be your remedies? So, so on the first, Actually, in fact, if, it, if you're including China, you're like five going to 25, yeah. <laughs> right? So it's, it's, it's much larger. I was actually just talking about, you know, the, the kind of the growth of companies like, you know, Airbnb and others as they, as a, as they establish, you know, on the stage. Um, and obviously, you know, there's a bunch, you know, right now around like Netflix and Salesforce and other kinds of things. So I think there's a, there's a range of these, these companies become a multi-part uh, technology platforms. And with China, you're going to see a ton more. Um, and then I think in terms of, you know, it's one of the things that I've actually uh, started working on in, in 2019, and I got very concerned about the 2020 election. So I'm going to get back to it soon. But it's kind of the question of how do we build the for like, what are the tools and, and sets we can do to build kind of regulation to the outcomes we want, but don't try to enshrine the past, allow adaptation in the future. I'll give you one kind of like microcosm example. Like say you said, look, we don't want to have um, uh, video uh, depictions of kind of live streams of terrorist assaults or murderers or anything else. So you say, you know, what's the way you would regulate that? Well, a simple way, like if I was going to try to regulate, if I was in charge of regulating that today, what I would say is, okay, here's our law. It's $10,000 fine per view. And the companies have to self-report, but they have to self-report through their auditors. Like the auditors have to say, this was actually, in fact, like done well. And so they self-report. And, and then we say, okay, so we assign, we assess the fines and we, you know, take whatever dollar amount, I, I kind of pulled the number out of the air, but take whatever dollar amount you want that's the right thing. Because trying to go to zero seems kind of crazy. And by the way, people do individually, accidentally, Terror, terror, terrifyingly do see live murders. So like one person saw it or two people saw it is not actually in fact society destabilizing. It's unfortunate and terrible, but, but not that. And then you said it. And then by the way, it then becomes the tech company's ability to try to figure out, okay, well, what do we do? Do we have AI that's scanning for it? Do we have a 15 second or five minute delay or whatever? As opposed to mandating it, which is what enshrines the past against the future, you're saying, here is our economic incentive to you to continue to iterate and solve this problem in the right way, 
<laughs> right? And then enable that to happen. And that's, I think, the kind of pattern that you generally need to see happening with technology because it moves so fast and we want to build to the solutions of which the better solutions are in the future. Yeah, I know you're Mr. AI here, so obviously you think AI is part of the solution, but it's also pretty clear, I bet you'd admit that it's not the 100% solution. You obviously need human oversight, human intervention, human action. Um, so I'm, I'm curious about your understanding, your thought process when it comes to the mix. And if you hire more people, I mean, Zuck has hired thousands, tens of thousands of more people to try to um, mitigate this, but then your margins go down. Um, although that hasn't seemed to impact this those businesses much, right? How do, how do you feel about that? Well, so I think it's totally fine to hire a bunch more people. I mean, one of the things we have is about these global businesses. This is, again, one of the reasons why the businesses that will succeed in this stuff tend to have a very large footprint, which is one of the reasons why, again, tend to be not, like if you said you want these businesses to be American businesses, to not have an antitrust, like a breakup solution. So yes, maybe you have to hire 10,000 people. But if you're serving a billions in the world, then actually, in fact, hiring 10,000 or 50,000 people, that, that, that actually, in fact, does work. And then, of course, again, as you're inventing in the future, you know, one of the things that you, you tend to do is you say, well, how do we get uh, AI tools that even make those people more efficient and more effective? And by the way, just on your, your AI point, it's actually, in fact, one of the things that I help stand up and I'm the, uh, the chair of the advisory board is the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered AI. Because precisely the whole question is, how do you have AI that has very positive human impact, whether it's jobs, uh, whether it's equality or, you know, you know, kind of, um, you know, fairness in society and all those things and make sure that we're doing all of those uh, with these very complicated AI systems. That's a fascinating point there about the work you're doing at Stanford. I didn't know about that. It's really amazing. Interesting. I want to ask you about China a little bit more. There are people who are suggesting that um, you know, we're going to be entering a new Cold War with China and it's going to be based on a technology rivalry. I mean, not such a far-fetched or, or crazy notion at all. I think it's really just a question of degree. In other words, how much co-opetition will there be or how dystopian and, and fractured will the world be along these two um, ecosystems, if you will? Well, I think this is one of the things that, you know, again, kind of back to politics, it's great that we have a change in the White House because you both need competition and Americans, you know, winning things that are important to us. Um, by the way, that's the spread of American platforms, the dying, the Chinese, those platforms is actually a terrible, bad idea because you say, hey, buy American technology. Um, we're going to be buying Chinese technology. We already are today. You know, iPhone is kind of a mix designed in, in Cupertino, but built in China, right, as an example. And so, um, and so I think that that's the, 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 the important thing is to really focus on it as coopetition. Um, unfortunately, a little bit of the kind of competitive rhetoric, the Chinese hawks are like, you know, they want China to fail. China is an important part of the global economy. If China fails, we all fail. And so I think that, that bridge building uh, is really important, while still, of course, fiercely competing and making sure that China, you know, plays its fair and just role on the world stage. Doesn't kind of pretend it's an emerging economy anymore, isn't allowed IP theft, you know, that kind of thing. But it's like, no, 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 you have to play, you know, we have to have a collective set of rules that we all play together that allow the world to progress. Maybe just to drill down a little bit more here, Reed, but isn't a bifurcated um, 
technology economic system is sort of inevitable in the sense that you know you you're going to have uh, a situation where they're never going to let the U.S. say social media platforms in. I don't know what's going to happen with TikTok. That seems to have been forgotten now, which is <laughs> fascinating. Um, but you know, when it comes to chips, when it comes to uh, Huawei and um, competing, you know, against Ericsson and the Western companies, isn't that really going to get worse? Well, I think it will get worse. Um, but I think the important thing is to actually look. This is one of the things that I'm hopeful about in 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 kind of a Biden administration and the term of thing is to have a technology strategy, right? Actually, in fact be saying, what are the things that we should be building to? Because, by, for example, um, you know, not giving up on the hardware and the chip side, I think, is super important. Um, I think, actually, in fact, doubling down on the things that where a lot of the deep tech AI platforms is happening over in China. Chinese government has tried to wants to be in the lead in 2030. Well, actually, in fact, the U.S. ecosystems with universities and the companies and so forth is in the lead today. Well, work on that, try to try to maintain that, try to make that happen. And I think that's part of the thing. Now, I think what we'll see is we'll, you know, some stuff will be in China, some stuff will be in the US, some stuff will be in Europe. That will be a good universe of interdependency because part of the whole, you know, the the the, the what's 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 awesome about capitalism, one of the things is make trade not war. Like as we have these interdependencies, those are actually very, very good for us in a stable world order. And so I think we want that. But I do think that it's going to be, you know, it's going to be hard and there's going to be some definite, you know, um, collisions, fender benders, uh, you, know, you know, scratches, and it's going to take leadership to work through it. Let's talk about COVID and the pandemic and this time that we're living in, which is so crazy. But, you know, what it's done is exacerbated the division in, divisions in society, not the least of which, say, were the banks and the tech stocks and tech companies in Silicon Valley from the rest of the U.S. economy, never mind the rest of society. So, you know, you had this just incredible increase in valuation of these companies now maybe coming back to Earth because of a vaccine. I mean, so so what is your sort of top line thinking? Then we can drill down a little bit more after that. Well, my top line thinking is, you know, obviously, you know, this last year is the difference between you know, kind of reasonable government and terrible government, because we paid trillions of dollars of debt, millions of job losses, and hundreds of thousands of lives that we didn't need to, to pay. And, you, and anyone who looks at the numbers, you kind of say, okay, 5x the cases and the fatalities of the average of the rest of the world. Now, we've got some glimmerings of greatness, you know, the Gates Foundation and companies, you know, private enterprise going out and building vaccines at a rapid pace and all the rest of that. That's great. Um, but I think we need to return to a belief in science, a belief in expertise, a belief in, you know, like Dr. Fauci, who has served under both Democratic and Republican, you know, administrations, is a very credible expert who's just a truth teller. It's a super important place for us to be as Americans, and that should never be politicized in any particular way. Now, I think what that's going to come to is we're going to have another year of turbulence because as we figure out the kinds of things of, look, wearing a mask is part of how I'm uh, you know, caring for my fellow Americans, not spreading disease to them, we're going to need that. Even as we do vaccines, I fear that we'll begin to have politicized, take the vaccine or not, versus the, no, 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 my way of, of because because people, people don't quite usually understand vaccines. They think vaccine is I'm immune. And actually, it isn't that. It's harder for me to get it. So a lot of us have to take it to eliminate it. It's like a super-powered mask, 
<laughs> right? To eliminate it from the from the from the viral spread, what is what the experts call R naught um, as the as, as the incense. And we're going to need to do that. And why do we want to do that? Well, because our productivity will be hit so much worse than basically all of these other you know countries like like you know than than China, which you know like for example, I think Shanghai hasn't had a new case in like 250 days. Right? There's more cases in the White House than there is in Shanghai. Like we want to get back to an American economy. We need to get to a place where we have the disease under control, and it's super important. So we should be you know accelerating towards that, and hopefully. By assembling experts like the the, the Biden has already assembled a, a group of great people, including someone who was one of the you know early whistleblowers under Trump, and say, hey, this is what we're going to pull together in order to solve this this disease, both for health but also for the economy. But isn't it the case that sort of perversely, Reed, that when this vaccine or vaccines are out there, that the valuations of these tech companies will go down? Uh, well, some of them, and that's fine. I mean, look, it, look. The, the valuation of these tech companies are already so high that that's not a problem. So you got to like, you know, like if ones that were where investors think, oh, the only reason that's being so used is because of the pandemic. Fine. We'd much rather get back to everyone going to work and the valuation will still be more than high enough for everyone's happiness, including investors. So my understanding is that the VC world has been robust during this time. Is that the case? And if so, why? Well, um, you know, it's kind of a surprise. Um, when we've looked at earlier kind of, uh, of, of, of collisions, you know, things that have happened, including 2008 and so forth, always like the, the, the VC market generally is speaking of kind of like uh, you know, retrenched, you know, reserve their portfolio for their current companies, uh, you know, using other recessions, you know, the internet bust and other things as a model. And in this case, Part of what happened is uh, partially because of LP money into the, into the venture funds, the wide set of venture funds. I think it's because a lot of capital also thinks, okay, technology is the future. So capital around the world is looking for technology investments. So all of that flowed in. And so everyone went, well, actually, in fact, I can make this work. You know, I can talk through Skype. I can talk through Teams. I can talk through Zoom. I can say, you know, now, we at Greylock have been making a whole set of investments, um, you know, and and with teams and people we've never met, right? Like they've only been like this little box on the screen. Now, of course, we still do the reference checking and we still do our due diligence and calling customers and all the rest. Um, but with like, oh, look, there's a, uh, and I think by the way, a bunch of people are going, okay, the entrepreneurs are still like, well, we're not waiting, we're not we're not hanging around for the for the pandemic. We're like, we're building and we're creating new things and and on new available uh, products and you know at Greylock we've been doing a lot of enterprise uh, most recently because we're seeing all kinds of new enterprise opportunities but there's obviously a whole range. That's so crazy. So you do enough due diligence so that when you finally meet this person, maybe next summer you'll say, "I didn't know you were tall." Everything else, yes, exactly. that, right? That kind of thing. Exactly. So, what, what one thing we haven't touched on that much? You mentioned inequality a little bit, and I want to ask. You know what you're doing and what venture can specifically do to address racial and social bias. So, racial and social bias is one of the things we have. A, we have this. It's a stain on our entire society, and and especially some areas like obviously tech and investing are are, are just by the numbers uh, clearly uh, you know retrograde in this. And so it's one of those places where you have to look at yourself and say, if I'm not part of the solution, then I'm part of the problem. And so at Greylock, for example, we, we looked at this and we said, look, the, the key thing is, is to make sure there's a whole bunch of great 
um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, uh, people of color, a minority, other kinds of things, disadvantaged minority talent out there. We just need to build the network connectivity so that they have connectivity to investment if they're founders, to these early companies if they're if they're if they're you know kind of uh, professionals and executives. And so we did that. So we said, okay, let's do let's dive deep. And we did a partnership with Management Leaders of Tomorrow, which is founded and CEO by uh, John Rice, who is the brother of Susan Rice, who has already spent you know well over a decade you know, building these pathways for how do you identify great talent? And now we're going to try to help map, map that talent into the Silicon Valley tech ecosystem. And we're going to, you know, one of the things that we do at Greylock is we pride ourselves on being good partners with our entrepreneurs, but even with other investors. And we say, okay, let's try to make sure that that, that, that whole talent network is connected well throughout the entire Silicon Valley tech ecosystem. Because ultimately, that's how you get to, you know, kind of the, the fairness uh, to the justice, which is you have those network pathways by which people can then find the right opportunities, and and so that's the that's one of n things that we're doing uh, at Greylock in order to to try to be, you know, kind of uh, good um, protagonists of the future. I know you could probably talk about this for an hour or more, but what are a few things that you look for when you're trying to identify a successful startup, Reed? So. Generally speaking, it can be different patterns, but the simple stuff is, oh my gosh, this could be a industry transforming company where the time is now, sometimes because of technology change, sometimes because of market change, other kinds of things, that the founder has the uh, enough of the raw knowledge to get moving and is a learner and has that raw kind of grit and adaptability to go through all of the different phases that these startups go through. Like for example, in my last book, Blitzscaling, I kind of described there was five phases of size and the rules change at each phase of size, like, like how you run the company, what management looks like, you know, are you multi-threaded, single-threaded? And then you can do all that. And then where do you look at relative to the competition? Because one of the really fundamental things, which I just did on my most recent, you know, kind of gray matter podcast and essay, was that competition like, what does the competition look like is really central to how you do it. So you, that that's the suite at which you look at. And then and then that suite, you kind of go, okay, and then it's art and science. You can't just kind of pencil the numbers. It isn't just do a DCS analysis. It's like, yeah, I think so. Right, right, great. Um, and finally, Reed, you have seen millions of profiles on LinkedIn. And so I'm curious, what advice do you have for people who are applying to jobs online right now mid COVID-19 and how do they stand out from the competition? So um, I think that some of the things are uh, put extra energy into it. Like for example, like one of the features, small thing on LinkedIn is like having references, um, having like, but even if you're mailing saying, hey, here's three people from, you know, like you could say, here's three people who had who would be references for me and here's the link to their LinkedIn profile. So people go, okay, you know, showing, showing that, that different thing. Like another thing that I've, um, I've kind of encouraged both companies and individuals to do is while generally speaking, um, you know, I think recording a video interview of yourself and the normal thing is probably not that useful in this time of COVID it is very useful, right? Because like people are sitting watching screens all the time. It's like, okay, watching another video. So record a little video about like, 
why you're interested in this job, you know, who you're, and here's my link to my LinkedIn profile or wherever you're, you're, you're kind of uh, storing your, your professional credentials. I think that's very helpful. And then of course, always uh, try to use your network so that people understand that you are, you know, hardworking, you know, uh, collaborative and other kinds of things, which are the attributes you generally only get through references or network. Reed Hoffman, thank you so much for your time and best of luck to you. Thank you, Andy, always a pleasure. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Serwer.